This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. kick on the air it is thursday night march 25th the year of our lord 2021 jam-packed show wall to wall let me tell you what we're talking about tonight then i got to give you a quick housekeeping slash programming note because even as march madness goes on so too does late kick because so too does a jam-packed spring period of college football right now it's not slowing down so we're not either tonight ed orgeron made some really crazy comments that i've got to talk about not so much in the hot take variety that's not really the market that we're in around here but I think a lot of it kind of it kind of drifted under the radar really because of the tone and the tenor and the presentation. And it, we're not going to do that. We're going to do like we're going to read a transcript and we're going to say, what did he say? Also, big injury news at Georgia. George Pickens is out for the foreseeable future with a torn ACL. That is a huge, huge, huge injury for the landscape of Georgia and for the landscape of the SEC. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to do the USC mood tracker tonight by popular demand. And we're also going to talk about a number of new head coaches in the Southeastern Conference and the hurdles they have to clear. Because you may have Josh Heupel coming in the door at Tennessee, whereas you have, I don't know, Clark Lee at Vanderbilt, but then you've got Brian Harson at Auburn, Shane Beamer at South Carolina. Different programs, different situations. They're at different stages. So we're going to talk about the hurdles there. The quick programming note that I need to tell you about is, as you notice, we did not do a late kick live on Sunday night. What we did was we we bumped it to Tuesday. We had really good interaction there. It's not a novel concept. We do Tuesday shows in the fall, but in the the X season, sometimes we go two shows a week at Sunday and Thursday. So because of basketball, we did it on Tuesday night. You guys loved that. So what we're going to do this upcoming weekend is we're going to take what would normally be on Sunday and we're going to do another Tuesday night show. It's not going to be at its normal time though, because the Elite Eight will be tipping off later that night. We're going to bring you Late Kick and it's going to come Tuesday but it'll probably be around five or six Eastern time. So just be heads up for that. Obviously, if you've got your bell notifications turned on, you'll get notified. If you happen to miss it for whatever reason, you'll have the replay, but we will have late kick on Tuesday night again. That'll be the next time we do a live show. Also steady stream of follows are coming in on Instagram. The next late kick show owners association meeting that we do will be when I hit 2000 on there. I mean, let's get to 200,000, but 2000 is the next goal. At Late Kick Josh, go give me a follow on Instagram when we get there. The next Late Kick Show Owners Association meeting will commence. So with all of that out of the way, let's talk about some college football. Ed Orgeron had a pretty bizarre press conference the other day. It's the middle of spring. You don't expect it. It happens when you least suspect it. But there were some comments that Ed Orgeron made Tuesday that raised both of my eyebrows. And I wasn't alone there, but there weren't quite as many people who noticed it, I guess, for lack of a better term, as I thought there would be, which goes back to a principle we've talked about on this show before. And that is sometimes you have to divorce yourself from the tone or the personality or the backdrop, whether figurative or literal, of a press conference or a statement being made. And you just have to take the statement for what it is. 
So I'm going to do something here that we know we don't really play a lot of sound bites, SOTS, sound on tape is what it stands for. But we're not going to we're not going to play a long clip here. But I do want to play the clip because I want you to listen for yourself. And from Ed Orgeron's mouth, I want you to hear these words. And then you and I will react together. So let's roll it and then we'll react afterwards. First of all, I think we did a great job at hiring the coaches and uh, doing a great job of uh, interviewing them. I, I hired some coaches. I didn't even interview them. Uh, last from the last half, and I'm never doing that again. I hired, uh, I interviewed everybody. Uh, we didn't get the first, second. I, I tell you what, we got them on, on offense. I'm happy with them. I talked to Joe about them. I interviewed them. I told them exactly what I want. They have the answers. They're very smart. I couldn't be more pleased with them. You know, Durante was like the fourth or fifth choice. Well, so was I. Who cares? He's here. He's doing a tremendous job. Andre Card. I'm so excited about him. The D line coach Blake is doing a tremendous job, and DJ and. Uh, and Jake are doing a great job. So I'm very pleased with our offense uh, and very pleased with our defense. And, you know, obviously Coach Mack, I like him. I trust our staff. You know, I said to myself, I'm not going to let things slip by, not one thing. I'm, I'm identified, and I told the coaches. And they might think nothing's good enough, but I'm going to be hands-on. I'm watching every piece of film. I'm marking it down just like I did in the years before. They're going to have to explain to me what the, what are we doing. I almost cussed there. What are we doing? How we doing it and why we doing it, and they understand that. They, they, you know, they say yes, sir. I got a staff that's going to listen. We got a veteran team coming back. We got 33 guys that have started opposed to the year before. So there's a lot of differences this year. That doesn't mean it's going to make a difference, but I expect to have a good team this year. Okay, so there it is. Let's let it breathe. Let's let it sizzle. Let's react. There's a chance. I think you gathered this by listening. There's a chance if you just had that playing. Let's say you were watching it live on Tuesday when it happened and you were kind of you're about your business, you know, washing the dishes or whatever. And you were kind of passively listening. I could see how that would go totally under your radar. And it would sound like just another coach's voice at another press conference after another spring practice. And you wouldn't really make much of it. However, when we start breaking it down, there was a lot said there. There are red flags all over the place, blatant red flags that, as I tweeted out the other day, I think are only covered up by this really thin layer of icing, and that icing is made up of passion and personality. Because there's no doubt, before we break this thing down on a granular level, there is no doubt about the passion Ed Orgeron has there. There's no doubt about his willingness to try and commit to getting it right. I don't question any of that. But passion alone does not win you football games. Passion alone doesn't even qualify you to be a head coach. If it did, then you'd have 100-plus thousand folks every Saturday in Baton Rouge who are qualified to be roaming sidelines, actually leading the team instead of merely cheering for the team. So here's what I want to do. I want to revisit this, and let's just pretend, instead of listening, let's just pretend we're reading the words off a transcript. You don't know whose mouth it came out of. You You don't see it. You don't hear it. You just read it. I think if you read it like a court testimony, this stuff really stands out. Let me preface. I love LSU. You guys know that. You guys know my, my affinity for the program. So that's the backdrop with which these words are coming out of my mouth. The first thing that caught my ears was when he said, you know, I had coaches on this staff last year that I hired, but I never even interviewed them. That was, um, that was a baseball bat to the face to me. I rewound it about three or four times to make sure I didn't miss anything. I, I even went and listened to the full press conference so I could gather the context. So I was making triple sure that we weren't just being misled and it wasn't some clickbait stuff. It wasn't. Everything I just showed you there, we edited it down for time, was a direct 
representation of what Ed, or- what, what Ed Orgeron said about the hiring process. I want you to think about that now. Ed Orgeron's being paid eight and a half or so million dollars a year and just openly admitted to you, I hired people on the staff last year. I didn't even interview them. I don't know what in the world he was doing, but he wasn't interviewing people on his staff. He's not talking about grad assistants. He's not talking about off-field analysts. We're talking about people who either are coordinators or position coaches. And there they are on the sideline coaching every day at practice, coaching for LSU. I mean, the hopes of the 2020 squad ultimately rest on their shoulders. We haven't even interviewed them. I got, that, that boggled my mind when I heard that. And secondly, I have a theory as to why that probably was. What I think is, and this was a mistake, but what I think was Ed Orgeron believed coming out of 2019, they had cast the mold and it was just in place forever at LSU. And then what he thought to himself is, since we have the mold here already, you know, since we have what other successful programs have, we can just plug anyone in here. It's a plug and go situation right now. So if I can afford to be selective and I can plug any kind of football man into this mold, I'm going to go find people who mirror my personality type. And he didn't like Dave Aranda's personality, but he loves the personality of a guy like Bo Pelini, for example. And so you plug guys like Bo Pelini in. Well, the problem is he was a terrible fit. And the reason I have further confirmation, at least confirmation bias on this, is because Ed Orgeron went out of his way before a game was ever played. He went out of his way during the fall of last year to talk about how improved they already were defensively. Of course, there was no evidence that they were improved because as games played out, we found out the defense was terrible. So there was definitely no evidence that he could have seen in practice that was actually indicating they had upgraded from Dave Aranda. He just wanted to say it. Number one, because he wanted to dig into the side of Dave Aranda. But number two, I guess he wanted his own confirmation bias. And so I believe he mistakenly thought the mold's already cast here. We can put whoever we want to in these coaching chairs and it'll work. Well, no, no, you can't do that. And no, it didn't work. The second little tidbit I took out of this was him admitting that Durante Jones, their new defensive coordinator there, was his fourth or fifth choice. He said, yeah, Durante is my fourth or fifth choice. Who cares? Well, um, if it's that irrelevant, I, I probably, little word to the wise, wouldn't bring it up. I especially wouldn't publicize that. I want anyone out there, LSU or otherwise, Ed himself or otherwise, can anyone tell me any benefit to publicizing something like that? Because Director Colin and I can't find it. Uh, we can't find it anywhere. I have not spoken to someone yet who gave me a justifiable reason for why Ed Orgeron would feel the need to tell you the dude I hired wasn't my first choice. Second, nope. Third, nope. Maybe fourth, maybe fifth. I don't know. Do we understand who's listening to this? Well, number one, Durante Jones is. Now, he got hired, so he's thankful regardless. But I'm a recruit. I'm listening to that. I'm on the current roster. I'm listening to that. And it doesn't really matter so much when everything's going right. This is another theme I'm about to bring back up. A little bit later on, it doesn't matter when things are going right, but imagine if you get into the season and we have very mixed results. And let's say I'm not where I want to be necessarily on the depth chart. Let's say I'm running with the twos at outside linebacker instead of the ones. And I, I don't like it. I don't agree with it. And so I start to form some divisions in that locker room. Well, here's my ammunition. The ammunition I'm using is Coach O himself said in the spring, this dude wasn't his first choice or the second or third. So Mr. Backup option over here is defensive coordinator is the one who doesn't think I should be starting. Well, maybe if he would have hired the guy that was number one or number two on his list, I would be starting because maybe the right coach in here would realize my value and my worth. All of this stuff is on the table in a normal setting. It's especially on the table when you publicize the fact that I didn't really get the coaches in here I wanted to. 
So I got the ones that I had to settle for. Not good. I don't see any way that works out well. But number three, and even after all of what we've talked about so far, number three is probably the biggest deal to me. Plus, the other two are kind of in the past, I guess, so to speak. Number three, though, is in the future. And number three was where he said, I'm going to be really hands-on with every aspect of this program. That's not Ed Orgeron's wheelhouse. Never has been. I don't think it ever will be. And so I know that you could play devil's advocate here. So devil's advocate would say, well, he should be hands-on. He's the head coach. It's his program. And if you'll listen closely, he didn't say he was going to interfere in the offensive meetings. He didn't say he was going to interfere in defensive installation. What he said was he's going to demand accountability. He's going to demand to know why things are being done. And he's just going to want an accurate and a meaningful accounting of how the program is operating. That's great. That's what every head coach should do. However, if you don't have a master tactician X's and O's type coach, which Ed Orgeron isn't, then typically what you want them to be is a really, really good CEO type. Okay. That is how I would qualify Ed Orgeron. Kind of the same way that Dabo built things at Clemson. He didn't really specialize in being a master tactician on one side of the ball or the other, but he was a great leader and he put the right tacticians in place to run uh, the appropriate aspects of his team. Well, now Ed Orgeron says, I'm going to be a little bit more hands-on here. Okay, coaches have done that before and they've succeeded. And the devil's advocates out there may be right. Maybe he just wants to make sure he has an accurate accounting of everything that's going on. And as long as they're winning, I don't think there'll be an issue. Question always arises here. Anytime that you start to feel like a coach is meddling in areas of the program that he really shouldn't, it happens when things are going sideways a little ways. And that's what could happen with LSU. Think about, again, possible scenario as we get into the season here. Instead of starting out 5-0, and let's say they've started 2-2 two and two and they got a big week coming up where they're struggling to stay above 500. Well, at that point, all of a sudden you're in the offensive meetings. And everything's not working. You got an offensive coordinator over here. You're you're hired and he's explaining to you the why. But all of a sudden you're saying, well, that's not working. So then we got to do things differently. Well, that's when the meddling starts. And it kind of happens in degrees. But all of a sudden you got a coach who is really in over his skis. But, hey, it's his program. And he's in kind of defense mechanism mode anyway. That's where things go sideways really quickly. So I would love for us to get to October or November. LSU is in contention for the SEC West, and we can pull this clip up and we can laugh at it together, and it's really overblown. I'd love to be able to do that, but I'd be lying to you if I didn't say I had some concerns about this. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Concerns abound in Athens, Georgia right now, and with good reason. George Pickens, big time receiving, not a prospect, a product at Georgia, was 
set to have a huge year this year. Was going to blow up on all the NFL radars if he hadn't already. Well, there's been a detour now because George Pickens tore his ACL in practice Tuesday. It was a non-contact injury. Georgia made it official. So at least we don't have to listen to the rumor mill. Let's have it officially. What does this mean? So anytime we have these big injuries, I like to do my first thoughts. What's the roster impact? What's the longer term impact? So we'll do those in stages here. My first thoughts when this news came down was there are players on any given roster that you could put in kind of a hierarchy, like a one, two, three, four, five of the ones you can least afford to lose. Like JT Daniels would be the least affordable loss for Georgia. George Pickens is way up on that list. This reminded me very favorably to when Alabama lost Dylan Moses. Different sides of the ball, obviously, but they were kind of thin at linebacker, was Alabama. They were kind of thin at linebacker, but you knew that as long as you got Moses there and you got all these other young, talented guys, they can work off of him. Well, once you lost him, you were going to have to have like Christian Harris and Shane Lee start as true freshmen, and it, it, was, it was kind of a lost season for Alabama at that position in a lot of ways. Well, at Georgia, they're not lacking for names. The depth chart, when you look at the Georgia wide receiver depth chart, there are plenty of names that a lot of you remember, either from seeing them play or, more likely, from following recruiting and remembering when Georgia landed all these big-name receivers. However, names on a depth chart do not equal proven production. There was a great connection last year, especially when JT Daniels came in, down the stretch for Georgia, and they kind of righted the ship offensively a little bit. They showed you basically a preview of what they could be next year, and next year is here now. And part of that connection was the JT Daniels to George Pickens connection. It was great. I mean, that's who caught the most balls by far from JT Daniels. That's what gave you the most hope for being sort of a nucleus of that passing game, and then everything else can extend off that and work off that. Well, now you kind of you don't start from scratch, obviously, because there's a lot of talent there, but you sort of hit the reset button in terms of what the passing game is going to look like. So the immediate roster impact I think Jake Rowe and Rusty and Kip and the guys over at dogs247.com, they've done a really good job of encapsulating this. I thought to myself immediately when I saw that injury, a couple of names came to mind, but the main one was Jermaine Burton. Because Jermaine Burton was the guy at times last year, aside from Pickens, who you looked at and said, he's got that package. If you just eyeball him and you see the flashes that he shows, he has that complete package sort of makeup. They've been crazy about him ever since he's been on campus. He's one of those guys who... You always look at and say, boy, when the light comes on, boy, when things finally click into place and he's got some time for that to happen, Jermaine Burton's got to step up. He's got to have a big, big year now. Kyrus Jackson, he's a veteran now. He's been there for a while. Kyrus Jackson's a guy you can depend on. Different type of receiver, though. So keep in mind, if we're looking to fill a slot, not slot receiver, but a slot left open now uh, with the loss of George Pickens, you're probably looking for a certain type. Now, I thought Jake Rowe over on the Dogs 24-7 board the other day, made a really shrewd observation, shared some intel that I don't really think is widely known. And that was, even before the Pickens injury, Georgia coaches were they were kind of eyeing the transfer portal a little bit, looking for another, another receiver, maybe a speedier option at receiver. And so now what does that do to that effort? Because certainly it doesn't take away the need for, at least in their mind, another speedy option at receiver. But now maybe do you try and leverage the portal for a different kind of receiver or two receivers, three receivers, whatever the case may be. Keep an eye on that. Arian Smith is a great speed guy who's coming in out of the high school ranks. Don Blaylock is still there. Demetrius Robertson is still there. Um, Justin Robinson is a guy, if you're looking strictly at body type, it's probably the most comparable 
to George Pickens. Darnell Washington is a, a freak show at tight end. Again, a different package there, but obviously someone who's going to have to be integral in this passing game. Marcus uh, Rosemary Jack Saint is another guy that goes to show you there are so many names on this roster. The name It's not going to be a shortage of names. It's going to be a shortage, if it is of anything, of proven production. So then the longer term impact, basically that means what they're going to mean in the season. I go back to last year and I go back to thinking last year after Todd Munkin had been hired and the prevailing wisdom was, okay, with the hiring of Todd Munkin, therein pushes the button on our offensive reset at Georgia. But then COVID happened, spring got taken away. You had a quarterback situation in flux, as it turned out. And so a lot of, I think, even at the time, what Kirby Smart was prepared to commit to went out the window. He knew he was going to have a great defense. He wasn't willing to sacrifice the season with an offensive experiment that he didn't have time to properly implement. Okay, well, that ended up happening. So then we get through the season. You insert JT Daniels down the stretch of 2020. Looks pretty good. And you say, all right, if he comes back, which he did, we're going to have a really, really good um, advanced knowledge on what to expect from Georgia in 2021. And we'll get all of spring. So you're going to get spring. But now with spring comes risk. And so now I wonder how big an impact this has philosophically. Again, with Kirby Smart looking at what he knows they can do, what he thinks they need to do with every injury, with, with everything that happens to your roster, there is a reaction. And I'm not just talking about, let's move him to this position. Let's go to the portal and get him for that position. I'm talking about overall game strategy. I'm not saying this upends Georgia's game strategy of 2021. What I am saying is you've got a head coach that's had a propensity to make his default setting going ultra conservative and playing defense. That's his default setting. I'm not saying that's always going to be his setting. Coaches have changed before. His former boss at Alabama has totally changed his offensive approach. But if they were committed fully to that offensive approach this year, fully being the key word, then that means this injury doesn't change that. And so the bigger picture is an open-ended question is how much does this impact that? And I think what they see from the rest of spring through fall camp will go a long way in determining ultimately what they're comfortable doing. It's a workable schedule, really workable schedule. I think if you look at that opening week game, as I wrap up here, between Clemson and Georgia, how many questions do we have on both sides going into that game? This is just another big one, but whew, no shortage on questions for what could be, for all we know, the biggest college football out-of-conference game of the year. Let's head to the West Coast and do the USC Mood Tracker. A lot of people out uh, in Southern Cal land have been asking for this, and I put the mood for Southern Cal's fan base right now at fixing the focus. And what I mean by that is an anger that any of you who have ever looked at a blurry picture have felt. Blurry pictures are the worst. You'd rather just start over. You'd rather either have a clean, clear, crisp, in-focus picture, or just don't give me the picture at all. Because the thing about a blurry picture is this. You can still tell it's something. Like there's an image there. You just have no clue about the finer aspects of the image because it's not focused. And so at Southern Cal, and I got a couple of buddies, believe it or not, from back home in Georgia who are massive USC fans. They have sung this tune for years. Any Southern Cal fan I listen to, they sing the same general tune. They may not say it in so many words. They just want clarity. Either, either we're going to be terrible, we're going to be great, and there are several factors that go into that. We just want clarity. Right now, there's all kinds of varying degrees of fuzziness, whether it be the, the picture of head coach or the picture of the athletic department, or in some cases, things you can't control, like the picture of 
the Pac-12. So many things. Recruiting, they're just fuzzy. Year to year, there's no consistency. And so that's what USC fans want. That's the mood right now. Can we just have some definitiveness somewhere about this program? Clay Helton, let's just start there. Is he going to be the man or is he not going to be the man? Coming into last year, it was a foregone conclusion in, in basically 90% of people's minds. Well, already skating on thin ice with hot blades. This year will take care of him. Well, it didn't because you had COVID come in and then there was a, an abbreviated season and they ended up in the Pac-12 championship game. And so then we come out of it no closer to finality, but yet also no closer to being in focused or in focus than we were going into the season. Don't know. Is he going to be the guy? Is he not going to be the guy? No one knows. If no, then what else do we need to see happen here for action to be taken? If the answer is yes, how long do we have to wait to figure out the answer is yes? I'll kick it kind of up the ladder a little bit to recruiting, which ultimately ties back into head coach. But USC's roster, is it going to be college football playoff caliber? Is it going to meet those standards? The teams that, if I'm a Southern Cal, that, if I'm a Southern Cal fan, the teams that we watch in the playoff that we haven't been a part of yet since its inception, when are, when's our roster going to look like those rosters? And so I look at a signing class like last year. We finish in the 60s, like abhorrent, totally inexcusable. But then I look at this last cycle in 2021, I guess it was, and we've got Corey Foreman signing with USC. We're finishing inside the top 10. Where, where's the consistency? Where's the clarity there? It's, it's fuzzy. That's what it is. It's another out-of-focus picture. No one quite knows what to make of the recruiting apparatus. No one quite knows what to make of the roster. There's no reason to feel like, oh, we got them pretty well pegged. No, you don't. They finished, what was it, Colin? They finished 64th last year, finished 8th this year. There's no consistency. So at least some clarity in the recruiting picture and the roster picture would be great. Kind of an evergreen question right now at USC, it seems, is clarity inside the athletic department. Now, that's a much bigger issue that could warrant its own show. But as it pertains to USC football, a lot of folks just want to know, number one, like, do we have the right leadership, obviously? And number two, are we fully committed to football? Are we fully committed to winning and putting a product on the field and even more so putting procedures in place in the football apparatus that allows us to compete at the highest level? Because sometimes you think yes, and then you get a move from leadership or a lack of a move from leadership that leads you to think, oh man, maybe they don't really take this as serious as I do. So you've got that. But then the fourth one is probably the most troubling one. And this extends beyond USC even, but it also affects USC. And that is the lack of clarity in the conference picture. Is the Pac-12 going to give us the best opportunity to succeed long-term? Now, this one is really bad because the lack of clarity there is not something you control. Theoretically, you control the others. You don't control this. And so poor decision-making at the conference level bleeds down to Southern Cal and bleeds down to Oregon and, and, and Cal and Washington and wherever else. But you feel the pinch here because one of the worst things that could happen is you develop clarity in these other categories. And then you realize all the while, why, why am I not running faster? Oh, I've got a parachute tied to my back and it was placed there by my own conference. So a USC fan looks around and there's so many departments where it's not hideous. It's just not great. And again, we're USC not UC Santa Barbara, USC, football, Trojans, the iconic helmet, the iconic stadium, the iconic look. We deserve to be great is the point here. This sport is built and tilted towards us. We're supposed to be great. So either we should be 
or if we're not, we need to figure out why. And it, it wants to be definitive and it's not definitive right now. It's just kind of random degrees of fuzziness and out of focus. So that's what we're looking for at USC. Someone find the autofocus. And if you can't autofocus it, just shift it to manual and do it yourself. Let's go back to the SEC to wrap the show up here. Several new coaches around the SEC, and they have different hurdles to clear. We've gotten some questions about this. So instead of doing individuals, I'm just going to put them all in this one segment. Normally, when you get hired in this sport, it's because the previous guy failed. And he failed um, on such a spectacular level that he was fired. And then you were hired. Well, normally, obviously, what that means is you got a little bit of a rebuild that you inherit. That's not always the case. Like Lincoln Riley, when he took over at Oklahoma, there was no rebuild. Ryan Day, Ohio State, I think even Kirby Smart at Georgia took over great positions where there wasn't a huge rebuild that was needed. But most places there are. And we got four of them now in the SEC this year where, yeah, to varying degrees, there's a rebuild needed. We've got Brian Harson at Auburn, Shane Beamer at South Carolina, Josh Heupel at Tennessee, and Clark Lee at Vanderbilt that I wanted to briefly define the key hurdles for. And then we'll watch them this fall moving forward. Brian Harson at Auburn was the first one I wanted to talk about. What is the main hurdle? You can play right along with me here. What's the main hurdle that you think Brian Harson has at Auburn? Because to me, it's sort of twofold here. It's developing your pipelines, and that's mainly recruiting, and that's your network of contacts and the relationships with the high school scene down here. But also, you need to distinguish Auburn. So what's going to attract people to Auburn, what's going to attract recruits to Auburn is they either need to know you or they need to know Auburn. When I mentioned Brian Harson to a kid at Grayson High School or, or down in Thibodeau, Louisiana or in Montgomery, Alabama, they need to either have a clear, distinguished, positive, ideally picture of you as a coach in their mind, or they need to readily identify Auburn football with fill in the blank, something good in the blank. Ideally, it would be both, but at least one or the other needs to be distinguished. Right now, Auburn's kind of anonymous. To a lot of, a lot of high school kids, Auburn's kind of anonymous. They're that school that just fired their head coach, obviously. They're that school that used to specialize in hanging half a hundred on people every weekend, but that fell by the wayside. And sometimes they were good defensively. Lately, they haven't even been all that great defensively. They just kind of are. They live in Alabama's shadow. Uh, they're, right now, they're living in Georgia's shadow. And so they hired a new coach. Uh, if I'm a recruit, I'm waiting. I'm seeing how they distinguish themselves. I don't know much about the coach. He came from Idaho. I think that's in Russia somewhere. So I'm going to wait. I need to either know something about the coach or something about the program. Those are the two big hurdles for Brian Harson. How about Shane Beamer at South Carolina? Different set of hurdles here. Because I think Shane Beamer has to master what I call the two-front approach. It's a two-front battle right now. Talk the same way about Jeff Collins at Georgia Tech. Shane Beamer inherits a worse roster situation than, for example, Brian Harson has at Auburn. So he's got a lot to rebuild behind the scenes. The inner wiring, he's got a lot to rebuild to where, even though they fully invested in him, he cannot give the fan base there and the administration an immediate return on investment. That's okay. That's understood. But yet you still need the positive energy. So what is the two-front battle? Well, I just told you one front, but that's behind the curtain. All the inner wiring, all the building up of the roster, all the changing of the culture, that's behind the curtain. They don't want to hear about that. What you have to do on the other front, and that's the one you put out front on stage, is you have to master the art of marketing your program, not just to the fan base, but to recruits as well. 
Again, I would follow the Georgia Tech blueprint. I think Jeff Collins and company there in Atlanta, they've done a, a great job of this. They won three games last year. They won three games the year before. They're their third year now. That staff's third year in, but they still got a lot of energy because they've been working behind the scenes on front one. And on front two, they've been working right out in the open marketing Georgia Tech. They've done a really good job. Carolina would do good to follow that blueprint. Josh Heupel at Tennessee, you want to talk about a different hurdle or a different set of hurdles. They just got to keep as much water in the glass as possible. I've got the trusty college football playoff thermos here, and I want you to imagine I'm on one of those massage chairs, and the top is off of this thing, and we're massaging. It's like that Will Ferrell meme with the wine glass in hand. It's hard to keep water in the uh, jar if you're constantly shaking like you're in an earthquake. Well, that's what Josh Heupel is tasked with doing right now. He's got water in the jar, and everything around him is shaking, and you're just trying to wait till the shaking ends. And it's ongoing, even as we speak. Let's see how much water we can keep in the jar. What that literally means is I can't have players continue to mass exodus their way out of here. I've also got to keep the administration on board. I've got to keep players on board. I've got to keep coaches on board. I've got to keep everyone dialed in so that hopefully, and I choose my words carefully here because I don't want to give a false sense of hope, hopefully one day, Not too far down the road, again, fingers crossed, we find out what our NCAA fate is, and then we check and see how much water's left and how much of a refill job we have on our hands. The worst part about this right now is just no one knows. Like, you assume something bad's coming. I assume something bad's coming. Everyone assumes something bad's coming. The only thing is we don't know when and we don't know how bad. So therefore, I don't even view Josh Heupel's real job as having even started yet. Right now, he's just in disaster mode. And then once we finally get an answer from Indianapolis sometime in the next decade, then we'll be set to go to work at Tennessee, and then we'll be set to define what the real hurdles are. Right now, it's just disaster mode. And finally, at Clark Lee at Vanderbilt, this one's unique. Vanderbilt's always got unique hurdles. I think they've got to ID the positives of Vanderbilt, and they've got to master the evaluation and development aspects of their program. Now, they've put a premium on that that evaluation and developmental aspect. And I think everyone says they do it, but Vanderbilt knows that's that's what they got to thrive on. If you were the head coach at Georgia, you would know that you can go get the best talent in the country. You don't have to be the absolute world's best evaluator because you don't have to find diamonds in the rough. You just find the diamonds. And the diamonds, they're shiny. You can see a diamond. If, if it's 50 feet away on the ground, you can see a diamond. But if it's buried below the ground, you can't. So at Vanderbilt, they have to do it a little bit differently, obviously. But that's obvious. What do I mean by ID the positives of Vanderbilt? Well, what they have to do is they have to understand what the perception of Vanderbilt is. It's the 14th best program in the SEC, the 14th best job in the SEC, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know the reputation of Vanderbilt. Well, they know all that. And they know everyone feels that way. But the thing about Vanderbilt is there are a lot of positives, too. The mass public doesn't choose to talk about them. They don't have a vested interest in Vanderbilt. You do. And it's up to you to ID the positives of Vanderbilt and being associated with Vanderbilt and make sure that's what you market constantly. You got to push it out there every day. And they've started to do that. I think they've got a really firm grasp based on the observations I've had so far of that staff of what the limitations are, what is needed, and they've gone to work at it. And again, you got a guy in Clark Lee there who is unique in that he views Vanderbilt as a much, much better job, much more of a destination job than the normal guy would, because he's got, again, an emotional attachment. 
to Vanderbilt. That's a really good thing. I mentioned Shane Beamer. He fits the same description at South Carolina. So those are some of the hurdles that these first-year SEC head coaches are looking to clear. Going to be a tough fall. Going to be an interesting fall. Let me put it that way for some of these guys. And that is our show tonight. I really appreciate you watching. Again, at Late Kick Josh on Instagram, we're looking to get to 2,000 followers as soon as we do there. We will start the ball in motion of scheduling our next Late Kick Show Owners Association meeting. Thank you so much for watching. Make sure you like the video before you leave the YouTube channel. For Director Emeritus Colin, Jesse, and crew in Connecticut, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks so much for watching. Have a great rest of your night, and God bless. Bright shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo. Thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply.